Hello. From the Moscone Center in San Francisco, California, this is the 2017 ASPN Annual Meeting Podcast, a discussion of the latest scientific and clinical advances presented at this year's annual meeting. My name is Ibrahim Shatat, Chair of the American Society of Pediatric Nephrology Communications Committee. I'll be your host, and with me, I have a wonderful panel to discuss today's meeting highlights. This is Larry Greenbaum. I'm serving as your ASPN president, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the first ever ASPN podcast. And I can't thank Ibrahim enough for organizing these podcasts. Uh, we've had a great first day, and I look forward to hearing from some of the other people gathered here today about some of the highlights of the ASPN program. I hope to talk to you a little bit later about the uh, awards uh, luncheon, which was a uh, moving and successful uh, event. But I'll now leave it to some of the other people to talk about their sessions. Well, why don't I give an overview of, of what the program's all about? I'm David Rosansky, and I've um, uh, been the program committee chair over the past year. and. Um, I think the ASPN uh, sees the partnership with the um, PAS um, as a, a key component of its, uh, of its overall goals and mission to make sure that m members of the wider pediatric academic societies and, and pediatric nephrologists in particular are given a great overview of what's exciting in our field, both um, uh, clinically, both translation, both clinically and in basic science, um, and uh, including, of course, translational science. And so a year ago, um, when we were in Baltimore, I met with uh, about 15 very enthusiastic individuals who came up with wonderful ideas that we honed down to uh, 13 different uh, areas that we would explore. We would explore some original science, uh, bringing people together from all over the country who were going to uh, propose abstracts on the things they're doing in, in their lives. Um, and um, uh, those uh, are always part of the program here to really uh, in, uh, inspire young people to become involved in, in pediatric uh, uh, academic uh, endeavors. And then more importantly, um, we also worked on uh, trying to bring in some new and exciting ideas, and, and that's what we saw today. We started with the future of nephrology, which to get, a, get ourselves off to a, a real exciting uh, beginning. And the goal of, I think, our committee was to make sure that all areas of pediatric nephrology were explored. We had one, we're doing one area of, of end-stage renal disease. We choose either transplant or dialysis. We're doing dialysis this year. And then we, were, we looked at um, um, an area of uh, tubulopathy by studying cystinosis in great detail. Um, we're bringing the history of pediatric nephrology together, and this afternoon we had a, a wonderful uh, celebration of that history uh, by bringing both the pioneers together with some of the new and exciting advances that were uh, highlighted. And then um, we, over the next few days, we'll be also going into the many areas of pediatric nephrology, uh, such as um, uh, development, um, and uh, glomerular nephropathies and so forth. So I don't want to take up too much more of the time, but I wanted to give a good overview. Well, uh, I was very honored and excited to be here with this wonderful group of pediatric people that decided one day that nephrology uh, deserves some attention. Uh, 
for decades, we've basically been doing renal replacement uh, almost the same way. And uh, our field is very ripe for some disruption and innovation. Uh, from the days that uh, Kolf invented the stationary machine until today, we basically have been doing renal replacement with stationary machines. Um, and we have not been uh, very successful in uh, giving our patients their lives back. So uh, our field is now poised for big innovations and it moves in several uh, pathways. Uh, there, is a, there are groups of people that are trying to uh, make kidneys grow in the lab hoping that one day those kidneys will be able to be grown and implanted. Uh, other groups of people are trying uh, to develop a bioartificial kidney that can be implanted and that's uh, both cellular plus some mechanical technology. And then it's our particular uh, research uh, which uh, probably is going to be replaced one day by the others. But right now uh, we are uh, basically the closest to change the field because we already are beyond the first three human trials. Uh, and uh, uh, it was uh, very uh, interesting to see the reactions of uh, pediatri uh, pediatricians to this technology. Uh, when we look at children with kidney failure, um, it doesn't look too good. They don't grow, the quality of life is not great, and unless um, we transplant them, we have little to offer. So uh, we definitely think, all of us that are trying to improve on the technologies, uh, definitely think about improving uh, the lot of children with kidney failure. So thank you for having us and looking at what we're doing. We were very excited to have you. What do you see happening in the next five to 10 years uh, if you were to project out? Well, uh, I think that uh, if we get funding, which is obviously the limiting factor for everything we do, uh, I think that uh, in a couple of years, we might have our next version of the wearable kidney out and it will be out first for adults. Uh, we discussed a lot with the FDA, which is very supportive of innovation in kidney disease, um, to go first with adults before we go into pediatrics. Not that we don't want to do pediatrics, but we thought that uh, children are much more vulnerable and therefore we want to try adults first. Uh, I think that in the next two to five years, a wearable kidney would be a reality. Uh, not only in terms of uh, 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 trials, but already available to the public. Uh, I think that um, the um, outcomes of bioartificial kidney probably will take another five to ten years until we see something that is available to the public. Hopefully one day they will replace us. Uh, and um, I don't see, um, we always talk about xenotransplantation. I don't see that as uh, something that will give us any future. 
it's xenotransplantation is said to be the future and it will always be uh, and uh, building kidneys from uh, regenerati regenerative technologies stem cells uh, all those are a little far beyond but one day we hope will happen Victor I was struck by two things you showed one was people eating pretty much what they wanted eating high phosphorus foods and doing well and then your statement that we currently spend 3.2 billion dollars on phosphate binders in the United States and uh, that really made an impression on me and showed me some of the great things that could happen with a wearable kidney. Well uh, the economics of dialysis are mind-boggling. For instance if you look at uh, the cost I just mentioned phosphate binders but 7% uh, of Medicare expenditures goes to ESRE, uh, which is totally disproportionate. Uh, we have shown that the wearable, if brought to fruition, probably would save Medicare 10 billion a year. And this is not only uh, our calculation, but the calculation of the folks at CMS that we discussed this too. So in terms of the economics of uh, what we can do to the uh, healthcare expenditures just in end-stage renal disease is immense. Uh, we're just looking at a Congress trying to create a high-risk pool with $8 billion for that particular need, when almost half of that would come from eliminating the need for phosphate binders. Imagine what we could do if we would reduce the admissions from end-stage renal disease by half. If we would take care of the infections, if we would uh, reduce the amount of epogene we have to use. It's immense. So I think that uh, Washington, regardless of who is in charge, has kind of been blinded to the immense need to do something just from the economics. Um, another great session at the meeting this year was about uh, cystinosis. Uh, this is Christian Hannah, a pediatric nephrology at the University of Minnesota. And it was my pleasure to be a moderator for that session. Um, we had four great talks in, the, uh, in this session. Um, the first one was introduction to the cystinosis, which is a rare disease um, unknown by a general pediatrician. Um, and uh, which is the number one inherited tubulopathy of the, of the kidney. Um, it was greatly presented by Dr. Okamura uh, from Seattle Children's Hospital. Uh, uh, the, the, the second talk was uh, um, um, also a, a novel talk to me uh, presented by one of the uh, ophthalmologists who does research uh, on using um, eye drops to treat uh, cystamine, um, uh, to treat cystinosis in the cornea and um, uh, she used the nano-wafer technique uh, which is a material, um, an FDA-approved material uh, that can uh, apply a tear, artificial tears and that can be uh, slowly released into the eyes and she's using this technique to see if she can use the cystamine eye drops to, to deliver this medication to the patient. Um, as we know um, that uh, the eye drop that currently used um, has to be used every one hour uh, during awake time for these children and uh, that will make it hard to the family and uh, for adherence to this medication. 
So using this Nanoweaver technique will deliver this medication slowly uh, throughout the day. Um, the, the, the third talk by Dr. Mary Leonard um, from Stanford um, University uh, was about the long-term manifestation of uh, cystinosis and complication in the bone and the muscles. And her current research study is by using a high-resolution CT scan, a QCT, uh, to detect the bone abnormality and manifestation in patients with cystinosis. Um, and the last talk was uh, about using a uh, um, stem cell transplant um, as a future novel therapy for to eradicate, uh, eradicate uh, cystinosis in patients. And her, her studies on mice started from 2002, uh, and, um, and her multiple research showed that uh, doing um, a stem cells transplant on mice uh, can reduce cystamine contents in some organs in the bodies, including the eyes, the kidneys, um, and the livers. And, uh, and now she um, has an IRB um, um, uh, in place uh, to, to do the first uh, um, bomber transplant in human subject uh, using a lentivirus uh, technique. So I thought that uh, there was a three, three or four fascinating talks uh, about cystinosis. Uh, this is Elaine Camille from uh, Cedar sinai uh, This is my second year of um, co-moderating the Year in the Know uh, session, which was originally des uh, designed to highlight seminal papers that had come out over the last year. We started um, in 2016 through ASPN a history project where we were um, hoping to capture really important historical topics uh, in pediatric nephrology. We have our 50th anniversary coming up, I think, next year of ASPN. And uh, last year we had uh, Richard Fine talk about the history of pediatric transplantation and Sandra Watkins, our one of this year's Founders Award recipients, um, talking about the history of dialysis. And we feel like a lot of our younger colleagues don't, and some of us who aren't even so young don't really understand or have personal knowledge of what the struggles that our uh, our colleagues had back in the day starting up this really new specialty of pediatric nephrology and advocating for children with kidney failure. So um, last year we blended the old and the new and this year we did the same. So we started out uh, the session with a little bit of an overview. Um, we um, Fortunately, Russ Chesney left us a, a wonderful legacy of an article from Pediatric Research in tw 2002 where he um, talked about the development of pediatric nephrology and there was some lovely table, there was a lovely table in there outlining some of the major advances. And um, so our first speaker was Steve Wasner, who reviewed the uh, history of fluid and electrolyte therapy beyond, even beyond pediatric involvement uh, back into cholera treatments, et cetera. And then, um, then we had uh, four talks on um, new papers. One was uh, from the group at uh, Boston Children's looking at mutations in nuclear pore genes uh, causing steroid-resistant nephrotic syndrome, so they've yet identified yet another mutation. Although it's curious, it's this, this particular, these genes are expressed in all cell types and why these patients only have a, a renal phenotype is a mystery, but it was a really wonderful, interesting paper. Um, and then there was another paper um, from Minnesota looking at AKI and the risk of mortality in children undergoing um, hematopoietic uh, stem cell transplantation. So that risk is really quite high and it really affects outcomes. So um, 
that's very pr pr provocative and, and food for thought. Um, there was another paper discussed by David Saluski from Minnesota reporting on the large collaborative rep result of the epidemiology of AKI injury in critically ill children and young adults. And that was um, published in the New England Journal. So that was really um, important information to show how prevalent the AKI injury is and how it affects outcomes. And then there was another paper on um, kidney outcomes three years after bariatric surgery in severely obese adolescents, and it was really very <laughs> shocking but encouraging to see how improved their renal function was after successful bariatric surgery. Um, these kids had really decreased GFRs, most many of them before surgery, and then improved after surgery, which was, I think, very hopeful for those children. And then our last talk was um, from Don Potter, uh, who used to be at UCSF and now is working at Stanford. And he discussed um, the um, early dialysis and transplant experience at UCSF and showed that this, his first experience dialyzing a child using an enormous big vat and throwing in 100 liters of water and throwing in some chemicals and stirring it up with a wooden panel. And, um, Scribner shunts and so I think it really hopefully gives people an appreciation of <coughs> how you had to be kind of you know uh, an innovator and, uh, and and not be so uh, the things we couldn't do today without you know no one would let us do these sort of things today so it was um, but they really were critical for the time and they advanced the field so it's it's an exciting project we're we're now interviewing many people, many senior pediatric nephrologists at this meeting and then hopefully across the country remotely um, on their own experiences with the history of pediatric nephrology so we, can, we don't, won't lose these valuable resources and we'll be able to construct a, you know, a really comprehensive history of our field in, in the U.S. And, and hopefully internationally. Thanks, Elaine. I, I'm also very excited about the history project and this is a project that is partially motivated by the fact that 2018 is going to be the 50th anniversary of ASPN. So we're going to be celebrating our 50th anniversary and we want to also celebrate our history and capture how the society developed and also capture how our field developed in the United States. And uh, Rick Haskell has been leading an effort to do these video interviews of uh, pediatric nephrologists who can tell us these amazing stories of of what it was like uh, 30, 40 years ago when the field was just developing. I'm not even, I'm not quite, I, w I wasn't there at the very beginning, but even maybe 20 years ago, I was dialyzing a 700 grammar in our NICU, and one of the neonatologists came up to me and said, is this futile care? And I said, not if she survives, which she did. She went on to age four to need a transplant without dialysis in the, in the interim. So it's just, you know, just, understanding that not everybody really knew what we could do for little children. I just wanted to uh, conclude by mentioning that we had our awards luncheon today, which is always really one of the highlights of uh, the uh, meeting for me, because you get to hear about uh, the life and achievements of uh, two to three pediatric nephrologists. And this year we celebrated three pediatric nephrologists. Uh, first. Uh, honoring Isidro Saluski with the Henry Barnett Award, which is awarded by the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, for all that he's done to advance the field of pediatric nephrology and for the astounding teaching and clinical care that he's provided to patients through the years. 
and hearing his story of uh, growing up in Argentina and moving to Paris for his training and then ultimately through circumstance ending up at UCLA and developing a career uh, that is phenomenal for its productivity and achievement. Uh, we then uh, awarded our two Founders Awards and uh, the first recipient was Sandy Watkins who spent all of her career in Seattle and has done so much to train uh, the next generation of pediatric nephrologists. She made enormous contributions to the, the society, the American Society of Pediatric Nephrology and also advanced uh, the research uh, in pediatric nephrology uh, and is, was especially good at collaborating with people all over the country. And uh, it was uh, fascinating to hear her story of how she came to become a pediatric nephrologist. And finally, uh, we honored Sharon Perlman, uh, who spent most of her career in uh, St. Petersburg. And it was clear that she was an extraordinarily dedicated uh, clinician and uh, an extraordinary teacher winning multiple teaching awards and having an award at her hospital named for her. Unfortunately, as many of you know, Sharon passed away at the end of last year and uh, we dearly miss her in the American Society of Pediatric Nephrology because she was one of the greatest contributors to our society we've ever had. Her expertise in public policy her passion and her talent uh, were really unmatched, and, uh, and it was for these reasons uh, that she was awarded uh, the Founders Award this year. I'd like to uh, thank you for listening to the first ASPN podcast from the annual meeting, and I'd again like to thank Ibrahim for organizing it.